0: Hello folks, Dominic here. Just so you know, there are a couple of audio issues with this episode. The sound quality is not up to my usual standard, and I apologize for that. I have managed to resolve the issue now, and at some point in the future I will come back and re-record these episodes for quality. But stick with me, and the sound will improve in future episodes. Thank you. Imagine visiting Amana in the final year of Akhenaten. By now, the city was approximately 12 years old, and it had grown significantly. The population had skyrocketed from a tiny village to a city of approximately 30,000 people. The streets were bustling, as throngs moved around their workplaces, domestic areas, and did their daily chores. Smoke belched from pottery kilns and metal furnaces, and dust lay over the northern horizon from the stone quarries. The river banks were probably crowded with people gathering water or unloading the hundreds of boats that arrived daily at the town. Ships came from north and south delivering wine, meats, vegetables, grain, and fruit from all over the country. In the heart of the city, not far from the palaces and temples of the king, Wealthy and prominent members of society built large, elaborate townhouses. The inner suburbs of Arket Aten are full of estates, sizable properties belonging to families of power and influence. These estates were not just houses. They had workshops and production facilities within their walls. So the ancient townhouses are kind of a mix of domestic and industrial space. We will come back to that in a future episode. For now, I want to focus on one house in particular. This house is located on the corner of two streets, one running north to south, the other running east to west. It is a tall, two-storied building, made of mud brick, painted white. A sort of townhouse at a busy intersection. The home itself is relatively private, you can't see much from the outside. So let's go in for a closer look. To enter this house, you approached it from the west, coming off the main road. The entryway was a shallow staircase, leading up to a doorway, into a roofed hall with columns. Impressive, grand, the home of a man who possessed privilege and wealth. You approached from the west, went up the stairs, passed into the entrance hall, this darkened space must have seemed blessedly cool after the heat outside. You let your eyes adjust, and then you turned right and right again to enter a second, larger hall. This one had four columns, and possibly windows for light. Presumably, this was the waiting room, where guests sat, hoping for an audience or interview. When the moment came, you turned left and passed through an ornate decorated doorway. You came to the centre of the house, a large square room with two columns supporting the roof. Those columns framed the centre of the room, and as you entered, you would see the homeowner seated on the other side. His name was Ra-Nether, and he sat in a luxurious wooden chair, awaiting his guests. Ra Nefer was a prominent member of the royal entourage and household. In the modern age, you might call him a kind of chauffeur and stable master. His official titles were Master of the Horses of the Entire Stables, and The First Charioteer of His Majesty. Basically, it seems that Ra Nefer was the man in charge of the pharaoh's horses and chariots. The chariot, a two-wheeled, light wooden platform, was a prestigious tool of transportation. Used by hunters and warriors, chariots had won battles, brought down mighty game animals, and helped kings display their shining golden pomp. A charioteer like ra Nefer was an important part of the processions, pageantry, and public imagery of a king. It seems that Ra-Nefer did this job for the king of Egypt, Nefer-Neferu-Aten. The house of Ra-Nefer came to light during the early 1920s. Excavations at Amarna uncovered many parts of the domestic suburbs. Houses, workshops, and granaries all mixed in together. Ra-Nefer's house was one of those. And while it seems like any other Amarna house... It did provide something unusual. Sifting through the rubble and wreckage, the Egyptian and English excavators uncovered parts of the decoration. Bits of stone with hieroglyphic inscriptions gave a hint at Ra Nefer's house, the way it looked and the way that he presented himself. According to the fragmentary texts, Ra Nefer served a king of Egypt, managing the horses, chariots, and stable facilities of the ruler. He also might have been the king's chauffeur, the driver of the royal chariot. If this is true, Ra-Nefer may have been the one who escorted nefer neferu and Akhenaten on their travels through the city. If that is the case, it might explain an interesting feature of this house. The house of Ra Nefer started out small, square and relatively normal. But at some point, the owner decided to remodel his home. Remodel and expand. Excavations at Ra Nefer's house revealed two distinct phases of construction. First, there was a squarish townhouse, pretty typical and not very large. But later, the owner expanded it significantly. He enlarged the main house on three sides, adding new walls and rooms. He built a compound on the eastern side of the building, with storage facilities. The new house had large granaries shaped like beehives, and a wide, deep well. This well was huge, large enough that it had stairs leading down the inside to the water. Basically, The new estate was a full-scale renovation and remodelling of the townhouse, expanding all the facilities and providing space to store wealth. It seems like Ra-Nefer was trading up. Among the remains of this expanded, remodelled house, fragments of stone turned up the goods. Blocks with decorations and cartouches relating to a king of Egypt, the one whom Ra Nefer served. The names of this king were Anket Keperu Ra, Meri Wa En Ra. In other words, it was the female successor, King Nefer Neferu Aten, who was probably Nefertiti. So it seems that Ra Nefer was working for this king, and when Nefertiti came to the throne, The charioteer saw an opportunity to expand his house significantly. Ra Nefer must have invested big to enlarge his home and estate. Stone for the decorations was costly. The labor would have run up big expenses over time. So Ra Nefer must have felt confident that his new house, his new investment, was worth it. Sadly, it was not. Within a couple years of the renovations, Ra Nefer and most of the city's wealthy inhabitants were leaving. They were departing the capital and moving on, heading back to older, more established cities. The reason for this was relatively simple. The king of Egypt and their household was abandoning Akhet Aten. Ra Nefer and the people around him did so as well. Hello everyone, and welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast. Episode 140 – Tutankhamun This is the second episode in our story of Tutankhamun, the boy king of Egypt. Today, the king abandons his birth name, and assumes the identity for which he is famous. Tutankhamun, the living image of Amun, has arrived on the scene. This episode is brought to you by Kate, Jan, and Stephen, who supported the show on Patreon as hereditary nobles. Folks, you are generous indeed. With your support, I can dig deeper wells and stock the granaries more regularly. May Amun, the Hidden One, and Aten, the Shining Source of Light, bless you, your households, and any renovations you may do. To everyone listening, thank you for joining me. I hope you enjoy the story. The year was 1343 BCE, approximately. Regnal year one, under the majesty of Tutankhaten, Aten, the living image of Aten, the king of Egypt. The new ruler was about 10 years old, and together with his wife, Pa Aten, he was overseeing a moment of transition. Egypt's government, its royal house, was in flux. There were many decisions to make, and many changes on the horizon. It began with his home. At the start of his reign, Tutankh Aten probably spent a few months at the royal city, Akhet Aten. He may have travelled elsewhere to formally receive the crowns and scepters of rule, and we covered the evidence for that in the previous episode. But wherever he officially took power, the young king clearly did not spend very long at Arket Aten. Soon, he and his court decided to move. Within a few months, maybe a year at most, the king of Egypt left the palaces of Arket Aten for the last time. The ruler, his wife, and his high officials packed up their belongings, boarded their river boats, and sailed away from the horizon of Aten. When they did so, the city's prominence as a royal residence came to an end. It would never again enjoy the same level of importance. As far as endings go, it seems anticlimactic. Akhet Aten had developed from nothing and become an immense city. 30,000 people or more lived here. They had toiled, starved, and suffered to build a new town. Now, all of their work, all their efforts, came to an end. It is almost sad. But this was not the total end of Arket Aten. Although the king was leaving, life would continue here. And a few decades later, another ruler would make offerings to the temples of Aten, So, the horizon of Aten continued to function for a little while. Its importance diminished rapidly, but the community persisted, at least for a time. We will share those stories in future episodes. When Tutank Aten left the city, he and his household boarded their ships and sailed north. The king was not going to live in Waset, aka Thebes, the southern city. Instead, he travelled to Memphis, the city of Men-Nefer. Memphis was a good choice. It was close to the Nile Delta, to the Mediterranean Sea, and close to the Sinai Peninsula. It was also closer to Canaan and Syria. That was important. When Tutankhaten came to the throne, Egypt's power in the north was under threat. The cities of Canaan and Syria were in turmoil, and warfare was spreading. This was a problem. The Egyptians had many vassals and connections in the north. They traded, communicated, and exchanged gifts with distant rulers. But now, some of those rulers were causing trouble, and foreign empires were raising hell. So the Egyptians needed to defend their territories. They needed to deal with the threats. This might be one of the major reasons why Tutankhaten and his government moved north to Memphis, rather than Thebes. By living in the north, they could access and communicate more quickly with their territories and vassals in the east. If they stayed in Thebes, they would be far to the south, far away from the Mediterranean and the territories they needed to defend. This might be one of the major reasons why Tutankhaten came to live at Memphis. Whatever his exact motivation, we do know that Tutankhaten came to live at the northern city. Royal decrees, texts, which survive from his reign, refer to the king living in a palace in the region. Specifically, it seems that Tutankhaten was living in a palace called the House of A-Kepa-Kara, In other words, this was a palace established by King Thutmose I, one of the great founders of the 18th dynasty lineage. Thutmose I was a direct ancestor of the king, as far as we can tell. And he was also a legendary warrior, who had extended the borders of Egyptian power far up into Syria. In other words, Thutmose I was a legacy figure. By taking up residence in his palace the young king and his government could establish their agenda and their credentials. When Tutankhaten abandoned the city of Akhetaten, his government moved with him. Well, actually, I am describing that the wrong way round. Tutankhaten probably did not instigate this move. More likely, the government did, and the king obeyed. Realistically, Aten was not in charge. He was too young, too inexperienced to have real power. Instead, government policy would come from his officials. A group of powerful and wealthy men would call the shots. These would be the true rulers of Egypt during the young king's childhood. We will meet many of these high officials over the coming episodes. But very briefly, let me introduce two of them. Two men who occupied the top positions of the king's government. Two men who may have influenced his decisions. Their names are Ai and Horemheb. Ai and Horemheb are famous names in the annals of Egyptian history. They are the most influential men in Tutankhaten's court, and they seem to have led his government, acting on his behalf. In fact, there is good evidence that these two men were the real, quote-unquote, rulers of the country. So Ai and Horamheb are a big deal. Their houses probably smelled of rich acacia, and they owned many leather-bound papyri. Let's start with Ai. We have met Ai, or Aya, before. He served Akhenaten as a prominent courtier and military official, And when Tudank Aten came to the throne, Ai stepped in to assist the young king. Ai's most significant title is Yat Necher, or God's Father. This is a kind of religious or educational role related to the king. Ai may have acted as a tutor or an educator for the young ruler, giving him instructions in the proper practices of power. I was also a military officer. Officially, he was the Emira Sesmetneb chemef, or the overseer of every horse of his majesty. This probably means that I organized the charioteers of the Egyptian royal army. The Egyptian charioteers were an elite military force, wealthy and influential men who stormed onto the battlefield riding their war carts. We will come to grips with the Egyptian chariotry repeatedly in coming episodes. For now, it is enough to know that I was officially their leader. Finally, I held a title called fan-bearer on the right-hand side of the king. The fan-bearer was a symbolic job, which basically meant that I was physically and socially close to the ruler. He could approach Tudankaten and stand beside him, perhaps offering advice on various business. Basically, I had strong connections to the king, and he would use those connections to build influence and power at the court of Aten. It's quite strange talking about I, or Aya. Whenever I say it, I feel like I'm talking about myself, I. So it's quite weird in my head to say I had a strong connection to the king. Moving forward, just bear in mind, any time I say the word I, there's a good chance I'm talking about I and not I. Or am I talking about I? Hard to say. I don't know. Anyway. The other high-ranking official was Horemheb. Horemheb was a military man. He had risen through the ranks of the army until he commanded all the foot soldiers of his majesty. Officially, Horamheb was the imira imyura mesha tawi in other words, he was the overseer of the overseers of the army of the two lands. In other words, Horamheb was the general of generals, the commander-in-chief of Egypt's soldiers. Horamheb wielded many titles, covering a huge range of military, royal, and administrative jobs. He had his fingers in many different pies, and as we will see in coming episodes, Horemheb is deeply involved in many of this king's projects. In time, this man would become the leading figure of Tutankhaten's government. This is just a brief introduction, we will meet I and Horemheb repeatedly. For now, just know that these two men were the secret weapon of young Tutank Aten's reign. They were the ones organising business for the boy king. So keep an eye on these two. They will be important. Tutank Aten and his government left the city of Arket Aten, Amana they moved north to Memphis, the traditional centre of royal power. Here, they set themselves up in a prestigious house. Having done this, Tutankhaten and his officials had started to establish the king's public identity. Now, it was time for the next step. In chapter 2, we reach the moment when Tutankhaten rebranded and became Tutankhamun. Changing his name was a major act with religious and political significance, and it would mark a turning point in the king's reign. What he did, and why he did it, is the next part of the story. That is chapter 2, after the break. See you in a moment. Chapter 2 Tutankhamun The year was approximately 1342 BCE, regnal year 2 under Tutankhaten, the king of Egypt. But the king was not going to call himself Tutankhaten anymore. Early in his reign, the pharaoh rebranded his identity. He abandoned the name Tutankhaten, the one that was given to him at birth. Now, he took on a new identity. This new name was basically the same, but it carried great political and religious significance. Early in his reign, Tutank Aten became Tutank Amun. Tutank Amun and Tutank Aten are basically the same name. The only difference is that they swap the name Aten, the sun, for Amun, the hidden one, the king of the gods. Either way, the meaning is straightforward. The king was, quote, the living image of Amun. Grammatically, it's a small change, but the significance could not be any clearer. When Tutank Aten changed his name to Tutankhamun, Amun, he revealed a major part of his government's agenda. The king was abandoning his association with Aten and returning to the traditional deities. In other words, he was rejecting the policies of his predecessor, Akhenaten, and restoring older gods. This was a big move. Tutankhaten might have been the son of Akhenaten, or he might have been a nephew. Either way, he had grown up in the middle of Akhenaten's reign, and much of his childhood was probably shaped by the policies of that time. In that sense, Tutankhaten's decision to become Tutankhamun did represent a kind of rejection of what came before. The late pharaoh Akhenaten had initiated some strange policies. And above all, his most controversial was the king's decision to abandon the god Amun. Akhenaten had tried to erase Amun, the king of the gods. He tried to destroy the images, and remove the names wherever they appeared. That particular policy had not lasted long. Akhenaten's successor, Nefer-Neferu-Aten, had started to reopen the Amun temples. So Amun was coming back into favour when Tutank Aten became king. But still, Nefer-Neferu-Aten had maintained the official Aten cult, she had used the name Aten as part of her identity, and Tutankhamun had done the same. By changing his name, Tutankhamun was effectively declaring that the cult of Aten, or the cult favored by Akhenaten, was coming to an end. Moving forward, royal resources and favor would go back to the traditional gods. The King would still honour Aten, but he would no longer make Aten supreme. The decision to change his name from Tutankhaten to Tutankhamun was a powerful, public declaration of his agenda. Tutankhamun's rebranding does read like a 180 on what had come before. The decision to abandon Aten and then adopt Amun as his patron must have been a clear and powerful message to the court and people. The king was not going to follow the policies of his two predecessors. He would not banish Amun like Akhenaten had done, and he would not try to bridge the gap like Nefer-Neferu-Aten had done. Tutankhamun was moving full sail into the restoration of tradition. This was a big moment. Realistically, it probably was not Tutankhamun's idea to change his name. The king was still a child as far as we can tell, so any major decisions probably came from his royal officials. The most likely instigators of the name change are I and Horemheb, those two courtiers I introduced earlier. The king's closest advisors, the leaders of his government, I and Horemheb are probably the ones who decided this policy. Whether they thought of the idea themselves, or someone else did, we do not know. But in context, it was probably these two who led the initiative to change the pharaoh's name. Whoever came up with it, the result is clear. The boy king of Egypt changed his identity. Tutankhaten was gone. Long live Tutankhamun. So the king had changed his name. Now that he did so, Tutankhamun's other names also become more visible for historians. Every ruler of Egypt carried multiple names. These were a crucial part of a ruler's public image. The names of a king set the tone of things to come, and communicated the agenda of the new regime. Since the old kingdom, every king of Egypt had five official names, five titles that conveyed aspects of his identity. These names followed a pattern, but they could vary from ruler to ruler. Very quickly, let us see what Tutankhamun's names tell us about his image. Firstly, the young king had a Horus name. This was the name he used as an incarnation of Horus, god of kingship, falcon lord of the sky. The Horus name of Tutankhamun was Karnakt Tutmesut. Roughly translated, this means the victorious or strong bull, the image of rebirths. The first part is standard stuff. Most kings called themselves a Nakt, a victorious bull. But the second part, image of rebirths, is interesting. It suggests that Tutankhamun presented himself as a kind of renaissance figure, a rebirth of classical ideas. Putting it simply, Tutankhamun appeared as a conservative ruler, taking his cues from the glory days of Egypt's past. This might have been a subtle rejection of his predecessor, Akhenaten, or it could simply be a statement of things moving forward. Either way, it is interesting. The second of Tutankhamun's names is called the Two Ladies Name. This refers to a pair of goddesses, the ladies of southern and northern Egypt. They would protect the king and guarantee his authority. Tutankhamun's Two Ladies Name was quote, Nefer Hepu Tawi Roughly translated, this means, one whose laws are perfect, one who has made the two lands peaceful. End quote. Again, this reads like a repudiation of what came before, a not so subtle dig at Akhenaten and his reign. Being perfect of laws, making the two lands peaceful, implies that there was something wrong before so it sounds like a snub at Akhenaten's regime. Fair enough, these names are significant. At the same time though, we should be careful. Egyptian kings frequently presented themselves as restoring or renewing things after a period of uncertainty. It was standard propaganda to say that, before me, everything was chaos, after me, everything was order. So, the names of Tutankhamun could simply be more of that propaganda to glorify the new monarch. Thirdly, we have the golden Horus name. This was, quote, Wetches khaw sehetep necheru. In other words, he was elevated of appearances, one who has satisfied the gods. This one is pretty straightforward. It establishes Tutankhamun's splendour and his positive relationship with the gods. That's gods with a plural. Tutankhamun's propaganda hammered home the idea that he would honour all deities. No more exclusivity, no more sole one of Ra like Akhenaten. Tutankhamun was a king for all gods. He would make all of them happy. The fourth name is his throne name also known as the Son of Ra name. This name was, quote, Neb-Khepru-Ra, which translates as Lord of the Appearances of Ra, or Ra is the Lord of Appearances. This name is pretty standard for an 18th dynasty ruler. It follows a formula that other kings had used for generations before. neb ra is quite similar to the throne name of Akhenaten, which was nefer It was also the same as Tutmos IV, Men-Keperu-Ra, and similar to earlier rulers like Amunhotep II, Aa keperu ra In other words, the something-something keperu name was standard practice, nothing unusual. Tutankhamun's throne name was playing to convention. The name neb is spelled quite simply. It appears as a sun disc, Ra, followed by a beetle, Keper, with three short lines or dashes underneath. That changes the Keper to Keperu, the plural form. Then, at the bottom, there is a flat-topped, round-bottom basket, or Neb. Put these together, and you get the throne name, Neb Keperu Ra. You may not realise it, but Kaparura is one of the most famous Egyptian names. Not because people know it specifically, but because this name is the most common royal cartouche for souvenirs and jewellery. Buy any trinket in Egypt or online, and there is a good chance you will see this cartouche somewhere. It shows up on necklaces, modern papyrus art, video games, and everywhere really. Nebkeperu Ra, the throne name of Tutankhamun, is one of the most imitated cartouches in all pharaonic history. So there is a fun fact for the day. Finally, there was the personal name, Tutankhamun. This simply means the living image of Amun. It conveyed the idea that he was an incarnation of the god on earth, a favoured son, if you will. Tutankhamun, king of Egypt, was the heir to the power of Amun. Long may he reign. So the young king changed his name. Maybe it was his idea, maybe it was his official's. At the same time that Tutank became Tutankhamun, Amun, the young queen also changed her name. Sen Pa Aten, the sister or cousin of Tutank also rebranded herself at this moment. She became Esen Amun. Again, this means basically the same thing. Sen Pa Aten meant, she lives for Aten. Ankesen Amun means she lives for Amun. So it was a pretty simple switch. Take away the Aten, add in the Amun. Nothing about the rest of the name had to change, the queen and king could maintain their basic identity. Officially though, the significance was pretty clear. The change in royal names to Tutankhamun Amun and Ankesen Amun marks the end of any half-measures in religious policies. The king's predecessor, Nefer-Neferu-Aten, had started to restore the temples of Amun, but she still kept her name in the Aten form. Now, the restoration of traditional gods would continue, but the ruler would not maintain any symbolic connection to Aten. From here on out, the king, and his queen, we're all about Amun. Around thirteen forty two BCE, approximately, King Tutank Aten became Tutank Amun. This decision marked the end of the first phase of his reign. It was an eventful one. First, the young king had abandoned the city of his predecessors. He left Arket Aten and moved north to Men Nefer, or Memphis. This marked the end of Arket Aten as a royal residence. From now on, the king and his government would rule from more traditional places. Secondly the young king revealed his new and improved names. Tutankhaten, his birth name, was no more. Now, the ruler of Egypt made his agenda clear. He was Tutankhamun, the living image of Amun. The king could not have made his point any more obviously. The policies of Akhenaten were gone. The restoration was in full swing. The pharaoh was returning to the traditional deities, and Amun king of the gods, was ascendant once more. This was only the beginning, though. Moving forward, Tutankhamun's government would have to initiate many projects to undo Akhenaten's damage. The names and images of Amun were destroyed all over the land. Now, the king needed to fix them. Thank you for listening to the History of Egypt podcast. If you are enjoying the show and would like to support my work, consider joining the Patreon. Patreon subscribers get exclusive perks like early releases, ad-free episodes, and occasional outtakes of extra material. For the price of a coffee every month, you get the best possible version of the show, without that annoying consumerism attached. Visit patreon.com forward slash Egypt podcast That's patreon.com forward slash Egypt podcast. Thank you.